Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show today. Craig Unger is here, author of American Compromat. House of Trump, House of Putin, House of Bush, House of Saud, and more articles than you can name dating back decades. What Craig writes about, in a nutshell for me, it's, it's Trump Russia. You know, if you've been following my work for any length of time, you know that what got me involved with journalism or news analysis or whatever it is you want to call what I'm doing here, 2016, the, the relationship between the Trump campaign and the Russians and the Kremlin right? I saw it. I, I knew what was happening. I wanted to learn more about it. Well, the guy who knows all about it is Craig Unger. I mean, every time, as I tell him in the interview, every time I go down some rabbit hole and think, oh, I figured this out finally, it brought me inevitably back to some piece that he wrote 10 years ago. He's been on this for a long, long time. It was super exciting for me to, to talk to him. We, we don't just talk about that. We talk about his career, we talk about Vietnam, of all things, and let me tell you, he had, if you think your eighth grade year was interesting, wait until you hear about Craig Unger's eighth grade, because it's it's pretty wild. It's wild stuff. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to shut up. I'm going to stop talking, because the longer I talk, the longer it delays this excellent uh, discussion that I have with Craig Unger. So we'll be right back with Craig Unger. Are you in federal custody right now? Are you under indictment for some fiddly charge like wire fraud, despite being the capo di tutti capi of the Russian mob? Are you worried that all the major tax crimes you're about to be hit with will spoil your run for president? Don't worry. Sing to the feds. Be a confidential informant. Hi, I'm Dick Baxter of the law firm of Sessions Ray and Free. If you're on top of the mobster totem pole, you have inside knowledge that law enforcement needs to go on wild goose chases instead of indicting you. Sessions Ray and Free can help you trade that knowledge for 
your freedom. But don't take my word for it. Ask Lucky Luciano. I was in Sing Sing. Then I get the bright idea to give the governor the scoop on who blew up a ship. That sprung me from the clink and I got to move back to Italy. Or Semyon Mogilevich. Every time Bob Levinson track me down and prepare for make charge, I call my handler at bureau and give name of some war who pissed me off. War go to jail and FBI get off my back. Or the former guy. Uh, I ratted out that loser, Sammy the Bull, and I get to bang Stormy Daniels during Shark Week and also be president. Give Sessions, Ray, and Free a call today. As former directors, they know that FBI stands for Free Because Informant. And now, back to the show. Craig Unger, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm so excited to talk to you because, um, you know, you you to me, you're one of the heroes of the, of, uh, of this time period in particular. Every time I, as a as a writer who's researching all this Trump stuff and the Russia stuff and all of it. I, I go down these rabbit holes and I think I, I figured something out and I'm like, oh, Craig, Craig Unger wrote about this like 15 <laughs> years ago. And <laughs> this guy knows everything. So um, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on and um, talk about all kinds of stuff. You know, not, not just necessarily the two books, you know, American Compromise, of course, and uh, House of Trump, House of Putin, but also just, you know, lots of other things besides. So um before we start, what, what I'm really curious about is uh, just tell us a little bit about your background. Like, how did uh, I, I know you grew up in Dallas and then you were in Harvard and you, you've been in Boston since then, I think. Um, just tell us about how you got to where you are now. Right. Uh, when I was in college at Harvard, I, I was on the school paper and this was during the six, late 60s, early 70s. And it was all about Vietnam. I mean, this was the height of the counterculture. And I, I guess I found that being in journalism at Harvard, I mean, it was a way to be uh, be part, half participant and half uh, very close to it, but also to observe it from a critical point of view and to be participate. Uh, you know, I was very much against the war in Vietnam, and I think I've been pretty consistent in a way. I, I started uh, in what was known as the alternative press. I mean, it's one of the. I, I a lot of it's been. Uh, it's all uh, disintegrated pretty much. But back in the 60s and 70s, uh, uh, places like the Village Voice, I was in Boston, in New York, uh, the Phoenix and the Real Paper in, in, in Boston, were uh, interesting places where you could pursue serious journalism in a very critical way. First, in, 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 to me, it was about the war in Vietnam back then. But it continued for many years. And of course, all that is uh, uh, disintegrated since the ascent of the internet and, and after that, social media. But it was a way for me to get my start. Uh, I, I also kind of wanted to be have one foot in mainstream journalism, certainly. And I was at uh, Vanity Fair for about 15 years, New York Magazine for uh, eight or 10 years. Uh, so I was always part of that, but I wanted to have a lot, a little more elbow room that I think reporters are granted at the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's amazing about the Village Voice. And we, we were talking about this the other day. I mean, I go back now and read some of the reporting, some of the stories that came out in the Village Voice from like 30 years ago. And they're incredibly relevant to what's happening now. 
in terms of the the cast of characters that they report about there's a um you know the the, the wayne barrett stuff um obviously and uh you know stuff about trump stuff about bill barr um it's it ran in the village voice in you know, 1992 or something and it's like this is a almost a key to, to uncovering this and and i don't know that there's a there's a similar thing going on now right and and it's sort of shocking to me the mainstream reporters don't bother to look at all this stuff you can dig it up pretty much uh pretty easily on the internet i mean and to go back uh, when, when Wayne Barrett was co covering Donald Trump 30 and 40 years ago, that stuff became very increasingly relevant. I knew the late Robert Friedman, who wrote for The Village Voice, and he was, uh, uh, had a book called Red Mafia. He, he investigated the Russian mafia in, in the 80s. Uh, when, and 90s when it, it took root in New York. That stuff at the time seemed kind of exotic and weird and uh, I, to be honest even I, I didn't really see how relevant it was until many many years later when I realized uh, the Russian mafia was laundering all its money through Trump real estate and that was the beginning of what I saw as Trump Russia so the work of Wayne Barrett and Robert Friedman was incredibly relevant to, to what's going on today. Red, Red Mafia is obviously if anybody listen to this if you haven't read that absolutely essential to understanding I, I i think the picture here i was i was reading something that that friedman wrote in the village voice um you know however long 25 years ago however long ago it was when i was researching the piece i did on Simeon mogilevich uh last week and um you know everything's still there it's all it's all perfectly relevant um so you started off, and this is this. I'm already deviating from what few questions I have written. <laughs> I have written down here. I want to talk. You, you mentioned Vietnam, okay? So, so anybody like I'm. I'm born in 1972, which is a the fall of Saigon is already. You know, it's already over by the time I'm around. So, um, you know, in my lifetime, I've been pretty fortunate not to ever have to worry about the draft or anything like that. There was. I remember when the first Gulf War happened. I was 18. And my friend and I were in my pool thinking, is this, are we going to have to get drafted? And of course we did not. And that, that war was over in like a day and a half anyway. Um, what, what's, what's interesting to me about Vietnam, looking back on it, is how the prevailing view that you had at the time and in the moment has become absolutely the view that most people have about, you know, that it was a mistake, that we should have been there, that yeah, whether or not we should have been there, it was, the war was conducted badly. But at the time, if you go back, Democrats and Republicans both seem pretty dead set that we sh we had to do something. What was the? Why were we there? What was? What's your take on what? What was the? You know, wh why do you think we were actually there? Well, what, actually, one of the better uh, explanations of that is in uh, the Earl Morris uh, documentary, "The Fog of War," which is centers almost entirely around uh, Robert McNamara, who was one who was literally the best and the brightest. I mean, these were, as David Albersam's book at the time put it, and these were very, very smart people, but they, their uh, mindset was forged in World War II in which we were the good guys. I mean, we were up against Hitler. And coming out of it, there was a genuine Cold War and a battle with Russia, with the Soviet Union, rather, uh, as to which, you know, you had two superpowers who were staking their claims all over the world. And I think what happened with Vietnam is that people 
that group of people, the generation older than me, still had that co uh, post-World War II mindset, the Cold War mindset, that what was going on in Vietnam was a proxy war between East and West, between the Soviet Union and the United States, when in fact, it was very much a civil war in Vietnam. And that's what it really was. And we couldn't get that straight. Um, and I, you know, I, I think as 18-year-old students, we could see it because we were not forged uh, in World War II and the rest of the country uh, didn't see it. And I, I think, I mean, millions of people were killed as a result and it was very tragic. Hundreds of billions of dollars were wasted. It, it, it was a devastating tragedy. And you've seen that split go on even to today. I mean, uh, I, I, I think that kind of division uh, was a precursor to what we see now. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. The only explanation that I, and I think you explained it very well just now, is that Kennedy giving his speech, he, he had something where he met with uh, Khrushchev and kind of messed up and did something. He, he, he had some speech or something where he, he kind of made a fool of himself. And, and it was the thinking was, well, we have to cover for this and make Kennedy not seem like this you know, naive uh, guy. And therefore, we should send troops there. That was the only thing that made any sense to me. But, uh, but yeah, you're right about the, the mindset of the people that were in charge coming from that generation. Right. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 it's just horrifying what we've done. I mean, we've, we've made the same kind of mistakes again. And uh, uh, with, I mean, I think one of the worst was with the, uh, uh, Iran, which was a staunch ally of the United States and Israel, and one of the two most powerful countries in the Middle East. But we overthrew uh, in 1953 the democratically elected president Mossadegh, who was sort of like a European social democrat. And the reason we overthrew him is we wanted Iran's oil. Uh, and it became simply that. And as a result, we installed the Shah of Iran uh, to do our bidding. He was brutal. He suppressed uh, uh, you know, any kind of dissent whatsoever. And uh, he was finally overthrown by the Shiites uh, in uh, 1979. And that, that set up the, the horrible situation we have in uh, the Middle East today. And it's been going, we're still paying for it uh, more than 40 years later. Yeah. Have you ever been there? Did you ever go to Tehran? Or... I, I did. I got to Iran around, I think it was 2014 or 2015. And uh, I, uh, I'm really glad I was able to get there. It was a rare opportunity because it's hard for American journalists to get visas to go to Iran. And this was a rare exception. And I worked for it. And I'm really glad I did. I heard it's sort of like, a, like Tehran, sort of like Los Angeles. Like it's sort of a sprawling city without a real center. Or Well, well there is. And, and there's part, if you go into North Tehran, and it, uh, North Tehran uh, it is the Beverly Hills of L.A., and you'll see uh, the sons and daughters of the leading clerics, the Islamic clerics, are cruising around in their Lamborghinis and Maseratis. Uh, and uh, you realize that uh, uh, that kind of Islamic fundamental, fundamentalism is just another kind of mafia. And, you, and I, I, I kind mm. of grown to accept 
that you have the same kind of structures in almost every country in the world, whether it's uh, Shiite Islam or the, uh, the Russian mafia today or the oligarchs that we are now has, having in our own country as well. That's interesting that you think about it. Yeah, okay. You just, now you made me think of something and I have to stop and actually contemplate what you just said because it made me see it in a different way. Um, so you talk about it being a, uh, a mafia. So let's, let's get to that. Like, um, as I mentioned at the, at the onset, every time I, I go down any sort of rabbit hole and do any research at all, into Trump, your name comes up, which you know it should because you've been diligently. I believe in many rabbit holes. <laughs> You're like Bugs Bunny down there. Um, yeah. So, why did you start writing about that kind of stuff when you did? Because I think you were on it pretty early. Right. I, I, in a lot of it, uh, it, it grew out of Vietnam. I, I, I grew up in Dallas. It was a very uh, Dallas at the time was very right wing. It's since become much more liberal. But it was a world that, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I was there during the Kennedy assassination. I, I was, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I was, so I was very much attuned to that when I saw the right wingers sort of leap out. I, I, I remember in, in 1963, it was about six weeks before the Kennedy assassination, the ambassador of the UN, Adley Stevenson, who had been a, the Democratic presidential candidate not not long before uh, gave a speech and I, I was in the eighth grade then and I attended with my eighth grade history teacher and as he was giving this fairly anodyne speech about world peace uh, suddenly someone pulled a, a, a ripcord and a banner unfurled saying UN Red Front and uh, dozens of right-wingers rushed the stage and started physically attacking Adlai Stevenson, spitting on him, hitting him with placards and so forth. And uh, he immediately told Kennedy, whatever you do, don't go to Dallas. Uh, uh, and Dal uh, Kennedy did not heed his words, of course, but I could see the birth of a certain kind of right wing that, that is very much a precursor of what we have today. And uh, I, I saw it as promoting the war in Vietnam. Uh, I, I saw it as, as driving our policy in the Middle East. And, and I think it's very similar to what we face today in, in the post-Trump world. Wait, so you were there when this happened? You, I was you... physically there, yeah. That, oh my God. Any uh, <laughs> radicalizing moment for me as a 13 year old, that was it, I think. And it was, uh, you know, we, uh, it, you know, you just didn't see that kind of thing ha happening, and and uh, suddenly, politics started to become alive for me. And Adlai Stevenson is such a, you know, not not a physically threatening sort of guy. You know, is it just, isn't he very short? Wasn't Adlai Stevenson really short? I don't know. He was famous for having holes in his shoes. And when he would cross his legs, you'd see, uh, oh, this guy needs new shoes. And he was sort of had a, a dour intellectual kind of affect with, with glasses and so forth, more of an academic uh, and much more too intellectual to be elected president of the United States. Mm. Even then, even in, in uh, yeah, in Dallas at that time. So five years ago, Okay, when I started getting interested in in this Trump stuff and the and the Russia connections, 
I didn't know really very much about it. I I, I didn't, even though I'm, you know, I lived in New York, I knew Trump was a buffoon, but I really didn't understand that he was a, a criminal, that he, you know, that he was really moving in the in the criminal underworld, laundering money, doing anything like that. I didn't get it. I, I just, I didn't know. Why would I, you know? So, but I figured it out pretty quickly. I felt like, you know, once I realized, hey, the, the, these connections that the Trump campaign has to Russia seem pretty obvious and the newspapers are telling us what they are, there, there's, there's something going on here. I thought, okay, yeah, that's it. This is, this is clearly something that's happening. And once I, I kind of had that epiphany, nothing that's happened since that time has dissuaded me. And every available piece of evidence that comes out has only enhanced my understanding that, yes, this is exactly what happened. And yet the mainstream media seems to both sides it or, or not take it seriously. And so <laughs> how, frustrated, how frustrated are you? Because well, you, you I, knew about well, this. Yeah, you know what? One one thing I should say is getting out of uh, as soon as I got out of college, I started working in what what we called the alternative press. Then, uh, for me, it was the real paper in Phoenix and uh, uh, in the Boston area. Um, but my mentor was the legendary journalist uh, I. F. Stone, the 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 great radical journalist, and. Uh, I, uh, I lived in Washington briefly in 74 or so, and I'd have breakfast with him regularly. And one thing he, he, he would tell me, uh, he was a, a, a devout uh, foe of what is sometimes called both sidesism. I mean, mm. and that's what the New York Times does. They give both sides. The Republicans say this, the Democrats say that. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, I think, Rather than being giving equal time to both parties, a journalist's greatest mandate to me is to deliver the truth. And you don't just these aren't it, there aren't both sides to the presidential election. They're they're the actual facts. We know right. that there is such a thing as factual reality, and the Republicans don't get to choose their facts. And uh, this has always been a problem, I think now far more than ever before, because you actually have many tens of millions of people who seem to believe things that are factually untrue, that are absolute lies, that Trump won the election, that there was widespread voter fraud against Trump, and it is simply not the case, and we've been, it's been proven again and again and again. And uh, you know the the this is a big big problem with the mainstream press, and 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 I think you could see it uh, in the coverage of events that long predate Donald Trump. If you the when Bill Clinton was president, if you look at the so-called Whitewater investigation, I think young people probably today haven't even heard of it, but but I researched the New York Times did over two thousand articles on uh, the Clintons and the so-called Whitewater investigations, and which essentially what Whitewater was about is uh, Clinton made, made a, the, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton made a $100,000 investment in real estate in Arkansas that was a lousy investment. And one of the people they invested with turned out to be a bit of a crook. But they didn't do anything wrong, and they lost their investment. And this was a subject of huge, of a real witch hunt. And the Republicans have mastered this, uh, and they have for 
for going back generations is they know how to leak stories to reporters. I, th I think one thing a, a lot of the general public doesn't understand is if you're a journalist, uh, you're owned by not just the company that pays your paycheck, you're owned by your sources. And you better pick your sources carefully because they are guiding you in a particular direction for a specific reason. And the Republicans learned to pick out various reporters at the New York Times and elsewhere because they knew those reporters would carry water for them. I think probably the most egregious example happened with the Iraq war when you had yeah. Judith Miller of the New York Times uh, reporting that uh, the, the administration found there was evidence of uh, that Saddam Hussein had yellow cake uranium and, and that that, uh, so they had weapons of mass destruction and that was a cause for war and it was used, uh, the Times was used by the Bush administration, George uh, W. Bush and Dick Cheney, and they were manipulated in a way that allowed them to start the war, uh, the Iraq war, and it killed hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, I just I just wrote down before you said that Dick Cheney because there was that thing I it, it, this is a while ago since I've thought about this they would call the New York Times or Judith Miller and say hey I, I, don't say my name but there's yellow there's something happening and then she'd write it and then Cheney would say well a report in the New York Times said as oh, if it was a fact oh, so it was, was this um, loop of well I, yeah. I write about this in House of Bush House of Sound because yeah. it was it, it was very. Yeah, I mean, you could see it lining up, and, and there would be leaks all summer. I think it was the summer of 2000 and, was it 2002 or three. Um, and I thought, no, there, uh, you know, there were hints in the papers of uh, weapons of mass destruction and all that, uh, but nothing was, was real. And they, when they leaked it to um, Judith Miller, that, the, as soon as the Times published it, uh, the administration four-walled um, uh, a PR attempt to sell this as we're going to sell this new war. In late August, the, secret, the, the press secretary for the White House said, you don't, we don't launch a new product in, in August. <laughs> so the week after Labor Day, the Times runs their story. And the next Sunday, on Face the Nation, on Meet the Press, on every one of the Sunday talk shows, there was a very, very high-level administration spokesman citing the New York Times and saying, this is why we have to go to war with Iraq. And they did it again and again. It was very, very successful. The Times has allowed itself be, to be manipulated like that so many times. Uh, it is breathtaking. And... You know, have it, and I, I think they did it with Trump again. And what scares the bejesus out of me is what's going to happen in 2024, because I, I think January 6th was a warm up, and this is not over yet. And Donald Trump is coming back, whether he's the candidate or one of his surrogates, I don't know. But uh, this is not over yet. No, we're we're not out of the woods by a long shot. I mean, this is this is a terrifying time. I feel like we're you know, like we're climbing up the, a very tall mountain and we're on the ledge and we get to sit on the ledge for a few minutes and then the rocks are going to come. We're going to have to climb up again. And we're running out of time to, to, to go on the attack here and, or go on the defensive and, and arrest and indict the people that did this thing or, and pull apart the networks. And I get that it's 
I get that it's a big investigation and it's hard to do and da 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 da, but uh, I just don't I don't detect the urgency that that we need to be having. I don't know. Right, but uh, but I but I do want to say when the time. I mean, what I'm trying to do in my work, and I've done five books now along the same theme, which is it's sort of a counter narrative to what you may be getting in when the New York Times is saying, oh, there are WMDs in Iraq. I do the counter narrative. And unfortunately, about the only way I can get these stories out is in books. And since the rise of the internet, all the magazines I've worked for have fallen upon hard times because uh, there's no advertising for that anymore. Uh, and all the money goes to Google or Facebook. Um, so it's very hard to fight that counter narrative in a timely way. And I've been trying to do it uh, with books and I do the best I can. Well, you know, I, you do a fantastic job and it, it, I think when your books come out, at least in my mind, what, what they do is they help me and I think help everybody that reads them. First of all, feel like we're not being gaslighted because the, the gaslighting that goes on with these Trump people is it's it's mind boggling. I mean, I've I've been working on this for five years. I've written about it extensively. I, I write about it all the time. And I still I still feel gaslit sometimes. I think, did that really happen? Did that really did Jared Kushner really have a meeting with the with the head of the of a sanctioned Russian bank? Did did he really go to the Russian ambassador and say we should establish a back channel through the Moscow embassy? Yes, all of this stuff happened. Trump's Trump's the chair, the head of his campaign, his, was working with a guy that was a Russian intelligence agent who specialized in fucking with elections. That really happened, and and, and the New York Times is both sides the whole thing to death. It's really weird, right? And the New York Times really won't go after stories unless they have. Uh, uh, a, a certain kind of official imprimatur. I, I mean, I, one of my biggest frustrations in my, my, my most recent book, An, An American Compromise, I think I make a pretty compelling case that Donald Trump was a Russian asset. He was cultivated, Soviet, Soviet he had been uh, cultivated uh, by the KGB going back to the Soviet Union starting in, uh, in the 80s. And uh, I cite, you know, on the record, KGB operatives telling the story of how it happened, but the New York Times won't touch it. And I think it would only touch it if the FBI were to say something, were to, uh, you know, authenticate it. But that's not going to happen because the FBI is partly responsible for allowing all of this to happen. Right. No, it's the 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 way that. America Compromise in particular has just been basically shut out of the press is is astonishing to the point where it's almost like our, our, guys you're allowed to talk about this it's not you got you know Yuri Spetz who's your one of your primary sources for for uh the book he's not some nobody he's not some some schmuck that was just hanging out in Brighton Beach he was he was the head of the what the Washington Bureau of the KGB. Like he was, he, he was somebody. a major in the KGB, and he was uh, stationed in Washington in the '80s, and he recruited Americans to spy for the Soviet Union. Uh, and he was there at the same time he was in D.C., but his colleagues uh, with the KGB in New York at the very same time were going after Trump, and he, he knew many of them and was able to. Tell me the story in great detail. Yeah, he's I, I, anybody listening here. I mean, 
uh, he's often been on podcasts with Craig. Yuri Schwetz has. Um, so there, there's a bunch of different podcasts you can go check out. He's, he's very interesting to listen to, I think. It's very funny. Uh, and and uh, it's interesting to, you know, to hear from him uh, as, a, as a primary source. But I, I feel like, I mean, I don't watch the TV news at all unless it's election night or something super big is happening that usually like, you know, towers are falling in, in lower Manhattan kind of level. Otherwise, I just don't ever turn this stuff on. But because uh, I feel like it's too slow and I don't, I, I'm very aware of being manipulated by watching this, the TV news all the time. But I do feel like there are people that are on these shows that know stuff. I think I think Rachel Maddow is really good and smart and clearly knows what's going on. I think Joy Reid knows what's going on. I think Lawrence O'Donnell knows and uh, Ari Melber. You know, there, there are people that know what's going on, and yet they don't come out and say they, – they won't talk about this necessarily either, and it makes you wonder why that that – that that would be. And I, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if their lawyers have told them to, to hold off when talking about it on the show or uh, I, do you have any insight into that? I mean, I. Well, I think you have to do it incident by incident. I know that I, I have faced resistance again and again, and sometimes it's merely turf battles. I mean, uh, you know, there may be a rival uh, colleague uh, in my field who doesn't want you know, who, who's after his own uh, uh, careerist advancement. Uh, sometimes it's they don't want to alienate their own sources. Uh, there, there, there can be a, you know, when you watch stories like uh, these kind of stories evolve, whether it's uh, the WMDs we were talking about earlier, you tend to buy, you're committed to your sources, you're committed to a certain narrative, and you don't want to uh, piss off your sources. And, 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 and if uh, someone else says something that contradicts it, uh, that's going to be, that's a no-no. I mean, I feel, I, I did a, a show one time, a, uh, a radio show, and there was somebody else was a guest on the show. And this person sometimes would appear on CNN or MS, one, one of the networks. She was uh, somebody that just went on there periodically. And at one point I was talking about uh, the allegations of Trump's drug use, which uh, Noel Kassler has talked about as, you know, witness firsthand. And this was around the time Trump comes out slurring and his, you know, his pupils are dilated and there's literal rocks of shit coming out of his nose. <laughs> so it seems reasonable based on the fact that I see him behaving like he's on drugs and there's drugs coming out of his nose that we should at least maybe mention it. And this person would not go near that. She practically recoiled when I said it. And I, and I, she didn't do that about anything else, but it was almost like I was like, oh, they must have told them not to talk about that. Like maybe for legal reasons or something. I don't know how this stuff works, but. Yeah, you know. I, I think you have to take it on a case by case basis. I mean, I mean, uh, there there are market, you know, people I, I think tend to receive the news as if it's well, now there's enormous distrust of the media, of course, but the news is influenced by all sorts of different forces. There are market forces, there are political forces, there is careerism among, among journalists. Um, there, you know, so there are all sorts of reasons why things are distorted. I, I think in some of the most important things, like uh, as we were talking about Judith Miller and weapons of mass destruction is you see opportunistic reporters who know they have a surefire front page story top, uh, 
above the banner for the New York Times, and they're going to run with it because they can source it to highly placed administration officials. And that is more important to, I think, the New York Times and a lot of other mainstream press operations than getting the truth, which may require talking to 30 or 40 or dozens of other report, uh, sources who are knowledgeable, but not quite as high, highly placed. That's interesting. I, I think it reminds me, um, you know, people bring up Watergate, obviously, as this example of, of um, the kind of investigative journalism that papers seem not to be interested in doing anymore. And I think it's worth noting how how many things had to break just right for that Watergate story to ever happen? Because you, you, ha you had two young reporters who were doing the, you know, in Woodward and Bernstein who were doing the work. You had the editor that, that they were working directly for that allowed them to do it and sort of stood by them. When the, when the story itself was questioned by the Nixon people, you had Ben Bradley being like, no, fuck you, we're, we stand by the story. You know, that's the, the guy that was the... Uh, you know, the main editor. He spoke to my journalism class in, in college. That guy, that guy was awesome. And then you had the publisher, Kay Graham, who was cool with the whole thing and just let it happen. So all of those things, all of those elements had to be in place for that Watergate story to happen. If one of those things isn't there, we never hear about it, right? Right, and Kay Graham later said she kind of regretted it and certainly hoped that they would never do Watergate again. If she had to do it over, she said no. <laughs> she didn't want to. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think it was the post's finest moment. Um, but it's also worth uh, understanding, I think, how little impact Woodward and Bernstein had initially, at least. That is, people forget that they started breaking these stories in June of 1972. That is, four months before, four or five months before the presidential election. And Nixon won that with a huge landslide. So yeah. it had almost no impact whatsoever before then. And I and believe me, if Con Congress's investigate had not picked it up and really begun to investigate it, when that happened, the Republicans of then of the 70s, unlike the Republicans of today, many of them were able to switch sides and actually tough ask tough questions during the Watergate hearings. Uh, they were not unanimous in defending uh, Nixon. And in fact, it was Barry Goldwater who eventually uh, walked to the White House and met with President Nixon uh, and said, you know, it's over. You're finished. You've got to step down. That would not happen today in a million years with Donald Trump. No, first of all, he wouldn't listen. And second of all, you know, none of them would, would ever make that walk to the White House. I mean, when I, again, going back to when I started researching this and looking into it, I thought, my God, this Russia thing is going to be the thing that's going to get him because I thought in my extreme naivete, when these Republicans hear that this guy's mixed up with Russia, oh boy, they're going to, they're going to go nuts. They're, they, Republicans don't like the, the Russians. And, and obviously I had no idea how big this thing was and that they were all, you know. Right. I mean, it's one thing I've tried to point out in my books is, is this thing has been going on for really 30 years or so with the Russians and, and that you go back uh, to the 90s when Tom DeLay was Speaker of the House. Why do you think he was going to Russia all the time? You know, <laughs> there was money there. Um, and and you, we think of, when I grew up, the Republicans, right-wing Republicans, hated the Soviet Union. And they were very, uh, so vigorously anti-communist that it's almost comical 
to see them now in, in debt to Vladimir Putin. But that money has been spread around and, and it, it is stunning to me. I'm, I've done what I can, but you, you have various uh, older congressmen or former congressmen, I'm talking people like Dana Rohrabacher uh, and Kurt Weldon, who, who are among the Russians' favorite Congress people. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll find that they have relatives who's on a Russian payroll somewhere here or there. But there is money going back and forth to those places. Um, one of my sources was uh, an uh, American businessman who was doing a lot of uh, uh, business in Russia in the 90s. And one of his business partners wanted to pay off Speaker of the House Tom DeLay. And my source said, no, told him, no, 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 you can't just give him a million dollars. That's illegal. It's a bribe. And he said, instead, what you do is you go to K Street you go, and, and you go to the lobbyists of K Street, who are, of course, lawyers. Everything is set up legally and right. they various political action com committees and they can funnel their money in a legal way to the Republicans and the, the uh Russian monster ended up saying, wow, this is great. You, you've legalized bribery. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know? And, and it, it really is true. I mean, when I got out of uh, college, I mean, I was sort of agog with how the oil companies would uh, hire, you know, the, the most highly prized, priced lawyers in the world. Uh, they would form political action committees. The lobbyists would actually write the legislation uh, and, and would hope one of their uh, aides would become a senatorial aide to, to actually implement it. And that is the way Washington works. I mean, it is money, money, money. And we, we know about that happening with big oil and big pharmaceutical companies forever. What is new in the past 20 years or so, it's happened uh, with Russia. Uh, and uh, I, I think no one deserves more credit for making this happen uh, than Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. And, and they, they became known as uh, lobby, the torturers' lobbyists. Uh, and they were doing it for the little smaller countries at first, for Ferdinand Marcus in the Philippines and Mobuto and so forth, and, and various dictators and tyrants all over the world. Why not take a few million here, a few million there, and lobby for them before Congress? And they hit the jackpot when they got to Vladimir Putin. You mentioned the money coming into these politics. Here's something that, and, and you might not know either. This is something no one's ever been able to fully explain to me, and I can't wrap my head around. People will go on Twitter and say, oh, Mitch McConnell got money. He's gotten money from this thing. And this, you know, Lindsey Graham's getting paid from this thing. But how does the money get there? Because like you say, it has to go to K Street. It has to go to the lobbying groups. And then even if they give money to Lindsey Graham's campaign, I mean, it's not like he can just go take that money and buy a house with it. It's, there's all these laws. So how does he benefit from having the money, I guess is my question. Well, you got you to go case by case. And I, I, I'm, I'm uh, kind of uh, uh, averse to drilling down unless I have really detailed information right in front of me. I mean, but it, but in a lot of cases, it's it's careerism. I mean, uh, and, at a certain point, I was wondering why someone like Dick Cheney just didn't give up that he probably has $1,500 million or so stashed away. Isn't that enough? Go do your fly fishing in <laughs> Wyoming and 
and uh, enjoy your life. Why do you have to start a war <laughs> in, Iraq, in the Middle East? Um, but the truth is, I think people do become addicted to power. I think you want to yeah. be a player. You want to be on the playing field. It, even, I mean, it's a long time since I've ever played team sports, but I didn't want to sit on the bench. I wanted to be on the field. And it's kind of a natural thing, especially with powerful politicians. I, I think it's just part of it. And, and um, you know, we, I mean, we don't know what's happening to all, if you look at Trump's money, he's raised hundreds of millions of dollars already. I mean, based on uh, the, the, the lie of the big steal. And uh, I can't account for it, but uh, I mean, what's it supposed to go for? What are the rules? I don't know the answer. And they'll ignore them anyway. His his money is going to go pay his legal bills. That's 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 the answer. That that one's easy because he's going to have some. Um, at least um, one would hope. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Craig Unger. Liz Winstead here, co-creator of the Daily Show and co-host of the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod. Well, the vaginal crossing guards on the Supreme Court have destroyed Roe v. Wade. Good news. My nonprofit abortion access front can help. On July 17th, we're hosting an activist training day called Operation Save Abortion. We're gathering experts from every area in the field of abortion justice and live streaming a series of conversations that break down the many opportunities available to you to protect access to all things reproductive care. Helping patients with travel needs, lobbying politicians, and getting into good trouble out in these streets are just a few examples that these amazing panels are going to break down and bonus connect you to the organizations in your area doing this work. So gather your friends for a watch party, then commit to becoming a defender of abortion access. I'll be there, and so should you. Operation Save Abortion, July 17th. For all the info and to register, hit up operationsaveabortion.com. Okay, we're back with Craig Unger. That was a super, super uh, relaxing break that, that we just took. I want to talk to you about the Russian mob now. I want to talk to you about Sevian Mogilevich. And I, I've been thinking about these characters um, and these people in a very vague sort of way. And I was, I did a deep dive on him uh, last week. And I read an interview that he did with the BBC and for whatever reason, because it's, I guess, because it's his own words and you kind of see what he looks like, I began to think of him more as like an actual person rather than this, you know, sinister force behind everything. So what's your take on, on this guy? What do, you, what do you think he's up to right now? Is he still alive? Like how much power does he have? You know, I, I, the truth is, I, I don't know at, at the actual present, but I, I think his power has been overstated to some degree that he was not the number one person in the Russian mafia, but he was sort of the brains behind it. Yeah. And that he is a very sophisticated financially, that he was terrific with money laundering. And he also understood uh, how to handle all the different corporations that the, uh, the Russian mafia needs now that it's become a multi-billion dollar operation. I am sort of stunned that uh, no one picked up on it much after my book. I thought it, I thought he would be a household name as much as Osama bin Laden became, that, uh, but he has not at all. Um, and, and I think um, 
you know, a large part of the problem is things like the New York Times has not, uh, won't touch it. Yeah. And if the Times, for better or worse, and it's often worse, does determine the agenda. I think when you look at cable news, for example, you've got every uh, every cable news reporter at MSNBC or CNN reads the New York Times. If it's on the front page of the Times, then it's worth taking a look at. And the, if the Times won't touch it, there must be a reason, so they stay away from it. Um, and uh, I think he he is, very, you know, whatever his ongoing influence right now, he's very, very important uh, historically and has been uh, in terms of Donald Trump and, and sort of luring him into the Russian mafia. Uh, you see people like, um, uh, uh, the, the way, if you want to look at the way Trump was lured in to the Russian mafia, you go back to 1980, uh, when uh, he was really just getting started as a, as a developer and he built his first genuinely successful uh, real estate development project, which was the Grand Hyatt Hotel next to Grand Central Station. And like any hotel, the Hyatt needed TV sets for all its hotel rooms. And Trump, where did he buy the TV sets? Well, it was very odd. He buys them from a Soviet emigre named Semyon Kislin. And as I showed in American Compromat, uh, Kislin uh, was essentially an operative for the, uh, the KGB. He was known, according to Gary Schwitz, who was in the KGB, Kislin was known as a spotter agent. And his role was to spot people who the KGB should recruit. And this was his way of opening the door to Donald Trump. 1980, more than 40 years ago. Yeah, that and Kislin went on to be um, to give a lot of money to Giuliani. There's so much weird overlap. What I, what I've found, and the way that I've that I've tried to attack this, at least in my mind, and try to make sense of it, is to see how certain figures overlap. And it's almost like you have to turn the the dial in your brain and think about it. Okay, this is the story from Trump's point of view. This is the story from Kislin's point of view. This is the story from Mogilevich's point of view. This is the story from Giuliani's point of view. And maybe in that way, you can kind of figure out sort of what's going on because everybody has different motives. Right, yeah. You have, one of the things that puzzled me is why didn't the FBI get onto this? And, 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 I, they, and I say that knowing they had to know this because a lot of my material came from FBI files. So they right. certainly knew about it. And, and what, what you see is, uh, well, who ended up, uh, what American lawyer ended up representing Simeon Mogilevich. It was, of course, uh, William Sessions, who had been uh, director of the FBI. Um, and and uh, you had people like uh, uh, James Kallstrom, who was a very uh, high-ranking uh, FBI official in New York, uh, who was very close to Donald Trump. So uh, there's a lot of reasons why the FBI dropped the ball in all this. The I, I I was writing that thing, and I knew that. I knew that about Sessions being Mogilevich's lawyer. But it really, if you just stop and think about it, because sometimes with this stuff, I think the news comes out so fast, almost by design. But you stop and think about it. When they put, when the FBI put Mogilevich on its most wanted list, his lawyer was a former FBI director. I mean, that's crazy. If I wrote that in a novel, you wouldn't believe it. 
Right, right. Uh, and and you you try to think about that. But let's let's assume you're a career FBI guy, and you've been there 20 years, and you're in the New York office. Uh, how uh, vigorously are you going to pursue someone like Donald Trump? How vigorously are you going to pursue the Russian mafia when your former boss is his lawyer, and the new boss, Louis Free, is going to end up representing them anyway? And Donald Trump has given your director, your immediate uh, bureau director, James Calstrom of the New York office, has given $1.3 million to his favorite charity. And then uh, uh, several other FBI officials, when they retire, they end up doing security for Donald Trump, getting uh, cozy jobs at a, you know, nice, uh, maybe making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year while they're still collecting their FBI pensions. Are you really going to put everything on the line to go after these guys? And I think they're heavily compromised. Yeah, I mean, it it, it, it it sure seems that way. I mean, e- either either through that way or just, you know, they're confidential informants. They can't rat out, rat out the the people that they've worked with. I mean, it go if you read through the the Mogilevich interview, there's a couple of things that that stood out to me. One of them is that he he says at least eighty times only what I read in the newspapers. Oh, I read about it in the newspapers. So he seems like a guy who clearly reads a lot about. I'm sure he's he's in Moscow googling himself. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now, now maybe he'll, he might read this, you know. Yeah. Um, I, he, I'm sure he read your book, Craig. Uh, it, <laughs> it seems it, it's insane that he wouldn't. Um, and the other thing is that they ask him in the interview, Tom Mangold of BBC asks him, hey, if, if you were asked to testify and basically rat out somebody, would you do it? And he was like, yeah, of course. I'd do that for immunity. Yeah, whatever. Nobody's asked me. And then there's these these rumors that that have been reported about were oh well actually yes he did he was an informant for the for german intelligence and that's why they couldn't get him there and yes he did inform in moscow and i think that was in that was in your book right that he yeah. informed in moscow in 2018 and maybe maybe orban maybe gave dirt on orban or whatever exactly um, i mean and people forget victor orban of uh hungary had been uh, a very pro-West kind of uh, liberal guy. Uh, and, uh, but in, uh, uh, I forget what year it was, Mogilevich was arrested for tax problems and he needed to get out of jail. And uh, to get out of jail, uh, he uh, reportedly uh, turned over evidence that, in which uh, one of his operatives had filmed Orban receiving a bribe from the Russian mafia and uh, apparently held that over Orban's help. And Orban did a 180 and became a close, close pal of Vladimir Putin's. And now they're firm allies and Mogilevich ended up getting out of jail as well. It's almost like, wow, how did that happen? Um, anytime somebody like that does a 180, it, to me, it's always a tell. You know, wh- Lindsey Graham is going around saying Donald Trump's awful. Donald Trump will be the end of the Republican Party. Drama- Donald Trump is a buffoon. And then he goes on the golf course with Trump. And then he's been pro-Trump since the, literally since the day that he stepped off the golf course. That, he didn't suddenly decide Trump was awesome. Lindsey Graham knows Trump sucks. He's, he, can't, he can't go against him. He's, he just can't. There's something on him that is preventing him from, go, from crossing him. And uh, <laughs> I, I had a, a, an attorney that, 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 uh, named Lisa Carr who wrote, um, wrote a piece for me on, a, on my Prevail site, had an interesting point one time. She said that 
if you're being extorted by somebody, the thing that you have, if you're, if you're the lawyer and you're giving advice to the person being extorted, what they tell you to do is continue to act like you're being extorted. Because if you stop, that means you could have stopped at any time. So it's interesting when you think about that in terms of Lindsay's complete inability even now to stop doing what he's doing. I don't know. But, you know, Orban is in that is in that camp. He's, he's one way and then something happens and then, hey, suddenly I've seen the light. No, you haven't seen the light. You've seen that you've seen the videotape. <laughs> right. So, OK, there's there's part of your book you talk about. And I find this fascinating. Have Mogilevich and Trump ever met? And you talk about a source that you have that's, you know, basically been around in the Russian underworld for decades who insists that this is true um, and says it doesn't, it wasn't even political. They just knew each other from when Mogilevich was in New York. How, how confident are you that that happened? Do you think that they've met? Well, I, I hedged it because I, I, you know, I think there's smoke, but there's not the smoking gun. And, and, and yeah. I, I'm not 100% sure, and I, I try to make that clear. That oh, you do, you do. Just, just to be clear, in, you do make it clear, yeah. Um, and, and it's just, um, you know, there are a lot of things that happen that are not well-documented. I mean, it's very easy. I mean, there's an old expression. I When I lived in Boston, and Boston politicians would, would say, uh, if you, um, I, I, I want to get this right, but, you know, uh, if you don't have to put it down in writing, uh, say it. If you don't have to say it, nod. If you don't have to nod, wink, <laughs> you know, and on and on. But you do whatever you can to minimize any kind of documentation. And, and a lot of things, uh, you know, um, you can just, they can just hint they have stuff over. I, I, I don't think there's been an episode where Mogilevich would say, we've got this dirt on you, Donald Trump. Therefore, you have to do thus and such. I don't think that's the way it works. Yeah, I don't. Um, Compromise uh, loses all its value once you release it. It's just there, and knowing that you have the sort of Damocles posed over your throat, and that causes—that's what causes you to behave that way. Um, and they don't even have to say that they have the documentation. They just have to make you think it and. And that's the case. And I and I, I think you see this happening again with Donald Trump and the Russians again and again and again. And I mean, it, it's just there's so many things, I mean, that are are obvious. I remember in one of the letters Trump wrote Vladimir Putin, this was around uh, 2015 or so, when the um, Miss Universe pageant was uh, was being staged in Moscow. And Trump was visiting, and he said he he wrote Putin saying he looked forward to going to Moscow and seeing. And he said, "P.S. I can't wait to see all the beautiful girls in Moscow." I mean, what kind of? Can you imagine writing that to a head of state? Uh, and and if you were to do so, is that not a suggest there's something hidden going on there? Where, uh, and that is very much the way. Uh, uh, the K Russian intelligence works, and uh, Putin knows it, and Trump knows it, and Yuri Schwitz, who told me all about it, knows it as well. But there's no, you're not going to find the real evidence. That's going to be very, very hard to find. Well, I think also he's been, he's been mixed up with the criminality of these people for such a long time that it's almost, 
they're almost in lockstep. Like to 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 hit him is to hit themselves in a way because it it's revealing all of the the, the operations of what they do. It's almost like he's if 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 the theory of him being a confidential informant for for the good guys is is one thing he's also sort of a confidential informant for the bad guys too and therefore he exists in this middle ground where he's sort of insulated in his own dumb way from from being attacked by either side just because they don't want to reveal too much about their own secrets and methods or sources and methods i mean well, the mob has that too and when you say being a confidential informant for the good guys and it's meaning the fbi but let's look at the case of <laughs> of Y.D. Bulger as a confidential informant for the FBI. And what happened there, where Y.D. Uh, was head of the Irish mafia in Boston, and he was bitterly at war with the Italian mafia. And as confidential informant, he was allowed uh, such a wide swath of immunity that he killed many, many people who were part of the Italian mafia with absolute impunity because he was a uh, uh, confidential informant for the FBI. And I think Trump got uh, even a better deal, perhaps. <laughs> I think that maybe he did. And and for all we know, Mogilevich did too. I mean, he says in the interview, hey, I would do this thing. D why does he hire Sessions? Does he hire Sessions out of the blue? Or, or has he met with Sessions before, back when you know they were working? Who the heck knows? It's all very complicated. And uh, it, it it's... Um, it really just blows your mind. And I, I, here's a question I want to ask you. I know we're, we're 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 moving up on an hour, which is you know I'm not on TV. I can, we can go as long as we want. But um, you started off thinking about these things in a certain way. Obviously, you've learned a lot as you as you've moved along. How has your understanding of all of this evolved over time, especially in the last five years? Just about the whole big picture, like how it all works and fits together. Right. Well, one thing I mean, the way I. I tend to start every book, and I mean, my methodology is I do timelines. I do one chronology after another, and you start to see, fill in the blanks. And, and the more complete it gets, the more causality emerges. I mean, if you see a series of events, you can see, uh, start to uh, uh, figure out how and why things happen, who you need to interview, and, 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 and so forth. Um, what I, I see with the once Trump enters the picture, though, is that it, 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 it's really kind of scary because it's as if you're ripping the scab off America's uh, mm. wounds and you see our dirty little secrets that are naked more for the first time. And that this is a nation uh, that was born with slavery. That was our original sin. And uh, of course, it was ended and all that. But the truth is, the Republican Party, I think, has become almost the Confederacy, the Confederate States of America, reborn. And we're, we're seeing that uh, these are not just movement conservatives. There was such a thing as genuine conservatism, I think. Um, I was never a conservative myself, but but I think there was some intellectual integrity to it at one point. I think that's by and large gone by the board, certainly within the Republican Party, and it has nothing to do with, you know, genuine ideological conservative. It has nothing to do with it anymore. That it is a sort of a neo-mafia uh, faction that that uh, entity that. Uh, is very much like the old Confederacy rising again. 
if, if you look at the red and blue maps, uh, I mean, it's almost a cliche when you get to the electoral maps, but the red states are pretty much the Confederacy. It's not just a coincidence, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And and that the Confederacy itself was almost a pre-fascist state. Um, though the North beat it, it didn't really end because Reconstruction was uh, was sabotaged. Uh, and uh, we still have residual forms of that kind of white supremacy that are very, very powerful going on today. And they've deeply taken root in the Republican Party, and the Russians uh, knew that, and they sort of exacerbated and fueled it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think uh, anyone who thinks things ended with the, the election of Joe Biden is, uh, uh, is a Pollyanna, and this is not over yet. It's coming back uh, in exactly what form, we don't know, but it could well be Trump running again for a second term and they will pull off, out all the stops, I, I, I'm sure of it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I think going back in hindsight, Booth killing Lincoln is one of the worst things that ever happened to this country, because I, I don't think Lincoln would have screwed up Reconstruction. I mean, the, the Andrew Johnson piece was just a big mess, and um, you know, we, we still haven't recovered because we've never looked back on the original sins and tried to do anything about them or learn from them. E even even today, we, you, you were talking about Judith Miller and the Times, and the media has never gone back and learned from that because it's right. the same I, shit I, mean, I, I think there, there's a very good book out there called Learning from the Germans uh, by Susan Neiman, and it really struck me a lot because it, uh, she's an American Jewish woman who's been living in Berlin for many years, and as anyone goes to Germany knows, um, you know, and I found this out when I was 13 and then my first trip to Germany with my father and he took me to Dachau. I, I'm Jewish, by the way. Uh, and, but the Germans say, yes, we committed these horrible crimes. We murdered millions of people. Recently, uh, the president of Germany said, you know, we, we, we are a murderous people. And if you love Germany, the only way to love Germany is with a broken heart. But Americans have not owned up to their original sin. At least a large part, a part of the country hasn't. When I came back from the trip, I went to the Alamos, and I was in eighth grade then. And we celebrated Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and all that. But I didn't learn the real history for many, many years, which is at the time of the Battle of the Alamo, Texas was uh, a state in Mexico. And Mexico just abolished slavery. The Battle of the Alamo was slave overs. We were rooting for the slave owners. We were rooting for the bad guys. And I didn't know it at the time. And yet it was glorified on American TV and by Hollywood and so forth. And we've done that again and again and again with from Gone with the Wind. It's still glorified in the South. The South will rise again. Uh, I wish I were in Dixie. I mean, you. Ha I grew up in that world. You know, I, and there was a wonderful quote by the late Lee Atwater, who was the famous mm. uh, Republican political consultant in the 80s. And he, he gained fame in the uh, era of George Bush Sr., George H.W. Bush. And he said, and I, I can't say it actually, but he, he said, look, when I started out in politics, it was really easy to 
to elect people, all you had to do was shout, and he said the N-word three times, and that's all you had to do to get elected. But as time went on, you had to be a little more polite, and you had to talk about state rights or forced busing or forced integration and use code words and things like that. And, and that's what the Republicans specialize in, I think, and they are doing it to this day. And what we see is that that racism, that white supremacy has been masked again and again and again. And the Republicans are really good at selling that message. And I think the Democrats always lose out in the battle of uh, controlling the language around politics. Yeah, no, I agree. It's so, okay, so in eight, when you were in eighth grade, you saw Adlai Stevenson get attacked. You visited, you visited the ruins of a concentration camp, and you went to the Alamo. So this was a, that was a busy year for you. We were leaving out November twenty second, though. Yeah. Um, oh my God. <laughs> uh, where my my father was a doctor at Parkland Hospital, and oh my God, uh, one of his pa one of the patients didn't quite make it. You know. Oh my God. Oh wow. That. <laughs> um. I've been to Berlin uh, a bunch of times, and th there is right in the middle of Berlin. There's there's the uh, the memorial to to the Holocaust, and it's right. it's this very simple thing. It's right in the middle of everything, um, and it's it's designed to kind of disorient you as you walk through. It's almost like a maze kind of thing. And you're right; the Germans have uh, that. That's a beautiful quote that whoever said that said about looking back with a broken heart. I mean, in this country, we've never done that. We, right, and it, it's not really, just slavery too. It's also you know killing all the indigenous people or or making them migrate. So, uh, you know all the Andrew Jackson stuff. So we got two things here that are really bad and uh, zero um, accountability or attempt at atonement. Just chanting USA and um, you know I don't know how how we're going to get through to that. But at, at some point, I think for the country to survive, we're going to have to look back and and atone for our sins in some way. Absolutely. You were going to say something. I cut you off. What were you going to say? No, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, you know, I grew up in that world. And in Dallas, uh, the big uh, public park is Lee Park, as in Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. So there you have us honoring a traitor, a man who destroyed this, who, who led an attack against the United States, who, who killed hundreds of thousands of Americans in the process, who was uh, doing so to keep slavery. And, and it's quite astonishing today, I think, too, if you look, um, you, you really think about the Civil War, because the vast majority of Southerners fighting were poor white men, uh, cannon fodder, giving their lives to fight for slavery? I mean, wrap your mind around that for a second. Why would you put your life on the line and actually fight to die to enslave black people? And yet hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people did that. Um, and today, I, I mean, I, 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 it, there's something very similar to me about millions of people refusing to get a vaccine for political uh, yeah. reasons. Um, you know, yeah. it's sort of astonishing. They're risking their lives uh, for a principle uh, based on completely scientific lies, and they feel it's a political statement. It's weird how people will just go against their own, you know, self-interest time, time and time again. I would argue until this, the, until recently, until this pandemic 
Robert E. Lee was the worst American that we've ever produced in terms of the damage that he did to the country and the number of people, deaths he's directly responsible for because Lincoln asked him to, to helm the, you know, the, the, the army of the Union and he refused. If he was the leading general of the, of the Union, the war would have been over in two weeks. Right. I mean, that would have been it. You know, yeah. the, the, it, it took so long because their generals were good and, and we didn't have that until Grant showed up. Um, so last question for you, Craig. What are you working on next? Because I, I'm always eager to know where you're going. Right. Well, we, we touched on some of this, and I, I, I think I, I want to talk a little about, I mean, there, there's the one that got away for me, which is the big, uh, you know, one thing I've realized is if you look at the election since I graduated from the high school, I've put together six Republican presidential victories that were tainted by sabotage, subversion, treason, lying, or whatever. And to me, the most important one, and I, I wrote about it uh, way back uh, nearly 30 years ago, was the election of 1980, the October surprise of 1980. Mm -hmm. And that was um, an election in which Jimmy Carter was president. Uh, Iran had seized 52 American hostages uh, in, 19, in late 1979. And the only real issue in the election was, it, could Carter get Iran to return the, ele the, the, the um, hostages or not? If he did, he'd win the election. If not, he would lose. And he was running, of course, against Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And during that election, there were secret meetings between the Republicans and Iran. And remember, the Republicans were not in the government, so any meetings were completely unauthorized and illegal. And the Republicans essentially made a secret deal saying, don't return the Americans. Keep the American hostages in prison. If you release them, Carter will win. But if you keep them in prison, we'll win, and we will uh, make sure you get weapons to fight your war against Iraq. And I wrote about this in great depth in 1991, I believe it was, for uh, Esquire magazine. Uh, and suddenly you saw a wave of um, attacks on me and other journalists who were covering this. Uh, I've since come across a whole lot of new evidence, but I, I, I think the larger thing is this was the birth of the modern conservative movement. I think they sabotaged the election just as they did uh, as they tried to, uh, uh, did in uh, other, other times. And uh, I've been to Iran uh, to gather information uh, about it that has never been before released. And I'm working on that now. Ooh, that's, that's excellent. Anything that, anything that makes Reagan look bad, I'm <laughs> all for it because he's another one. He has this, this completely uh, glowing reputation among most Americans that is completely ill-deserved. He he screwed up so many things and is so responsible for so much bad stuff that's happening right now that it's really astonishing. This the the idea that government is is the is a problem is such a ridiculously insidiously awful idea, and he, that's it. That's his that's his uh, you know uh, inaugural address is basically saying. This job is a joke. Fuck the government. It's it's crazy that people thought this was a good idea and still think it's a good idea. Right. I mean, you see a pandemic like COVID, and you see how we absolutely need the government to make sure we can get vaccines. Uh, it's insane, and I, I think clearly that's why 
so many Republicans today refuse to get vaccinated and they're killing themselves. I mean, it, it, it's, it is suicidal. Yeah, no, it's, a, it, it, it's a death cult. It's a, it, 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 you call the GOP a neo-mafia. And it is. I mean, the ma- you know, you can't have a mafia without dead bodies. That's just how Remember, it works. There was a wonderful tweet I saw yesterday. I retweeted it, but it was a video of an anti-vaxxers uh, marching in Los Angeles. And one of them started, did you see that? One of them shouts out, um, look at all these homeless people. Why are these homeless people not getting COVID? How come they're not dying of COVID? And one of the COVID guys, uh, one of the um homeless guy shouts out because we got vaccinated you dumb fuck (laughs) (laughs) that was i didn't see that 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 was great it's uh it's not just the maga people by the way with this vaccine stuff there's 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 a radical left you know uh crunchy tree hugging faction that's also against the vaccine um it's not it's it's really crazy it's not an exact overlap of the venn diagram alas you know it would be easier right well well, it's extraordinary i've written about this in different forms through the years but how uh un how irrational so many americans are and if you uh uh in western europe i think over 90 percent of the people believe in evolution in charles darwin and natural selection in the United States, it's about 50%. And uh, the rest believes the Earth was created 6,000 years ago or something like that. So um, I think a lot of that is responsible for this uh, anti-reality, anti-science uh, movement we have in the United States. And it's just devastatingly disappointing. You can't argue against faith as... Uh... I remember somebody, some smart person in my high school said that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You can't. If you believe what you believe, that's it. There's nothing. We can, we can come at you with the facts and, and, and the evidence and all that. But if you choose to believe something completely different, there's not, there's not a whole lot we can do. Um, Craig Unger, this has been such a pleasure. I, I want to thank you so much for coming. Well, um, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Craig is, is again, the author of American Compromise, which is absolutely a must read. He's the author of House of Trump, House of Putin. He's got a bunch of other interesting books besides. I think that the, the House of Bush, House of Saud one is going to, I think, I, I predict you'll be revisiting that too in the years to come. The, the themes there, I think, as we get further uh, and more distance from 9-11, more, more stuff's going to come out that'll make that picture a little brighter. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that too. What, what, whatever uh, you, you choose to title that one, House of something, House of... <laughs> House of something. It's going to be good. Um, where can we find you? You're you're on Twitter, right? At at Craig Unger. I'm on Twitter at Craig Unger. Yes. Okay. So uh, everybody, go follow Craig. Uh, if you haven't read his books, please go do so. Craig Unger, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Craig. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tarashenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs. Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. 
Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.